because I didn't really take it seriously. You have no right to think you know everything that's going on in this country if you know nothing. If you don't know some of the things that have happened with the Clinton Foundation. They're still talking about Hillary Clinton out there. Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast and the Jim Parisi Show. And yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day. Today, and without further ado, a guy who's quickly on the mend, ready to get back on the bandstand, burning away, David Nelson. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here. Did you cross paths uh, with uh, John Perry Barlow ever? Oh, yeah. Can you talk about John? Because I've been in communication. uh, They're doing some fundraisers for him, and I just wanted you to talk about John Perry Barlow. Yeah, uh, I met Barlow way back in the 70s, and uh, he used to visit uh, Bob Weir's house in uh, Mill Valley there, and I'd go there and we'd have a big dinner. And uh, uh, he told jokes, I'd tell jokes. Uh, uh, he told it, a joke that I thought that uh, we, I really howled at it, and we both thought that, you know, it's, just a certain kind of joke that's not everybody's going to think that's so funny. But uh, it's just one of those things, you know, and, and uh, now I can't, can't remember it good enough to tell it. But, no, uh, but I mean, like, the, but I mean, you, you guys were operating on the same frequency. What frequency was that? It was some kind of, there, it was some kind yeah. of, I don't know, man. He, when I interviewed him the first time, he said by like, 67 or 68 essentially i mean the spirit of america was dead he he, Uh. in the sense of in the sense of um i'm not articulating myself very much very well either but we were just talking about the 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 end of sort of the, the 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 belief in the dream of of consciousness and and free love and what was being espoused you know i mean i know you guys in your in your in your private, oh, I see. I wouldn't call that the spirit of America because it's yeah, it's that, that was that it was, was a kind of a awakening of the spirit or something like that. But yeah, I, I remember that. Uh, it all seemed like yeah, in '68 was the assassinations and uh, all kind of grim stuff was happening. But at the same time, all kinds of good stuff was happening. Was it? Was there any parallels to what you see today? I mean, where did you and Weir and Barlow? That what was your what was your trip about? I mean, you guys were. It, was it as simple as saying there's another path to take? You don't need to go down this. There's there's more than one way. There's, well, kind of. Uh, you know, we were we were growing up and we were uh, entering uh, the world. You know, uh, the real world. You know. <laughs> And uh, finding out a lot of stuff, <clears throat> and uh, so it kind of was that. It was kind of like a uh, awakening and discovering all kinds of new things. And it was a couple of years after the pranksters thing, you know, going all the way east uh, from California on that crazy bus and going there and uh, to New York to, to see Jack Kerouac. And Jack Kerouac was no, no 
shape to see him or anything. He just said, ah, yeah, okay, fine, thanks. And they turned around and came back. And But it was just an incredible thing that they went through all these towns with that crazy psychedelic bus when you never saw anything like that. In 1966 or 65, whenever that was, you never saw anything like that, like the, the prankster's bus. Never. Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, so it was just a repercussions and stuff by 68 and 69. It was like more of that stuff was happening. And uh, the new writers was born Sixty-nine, when Garcia wanted to play steel and wanted to be a sideman, and uh, so he asked me and John Dawson, you know, if he could come sit in with us, <laughs> you know, and uh, and you know, just all kinds of fun stuff was happening. What was it about Jerry's uh, personality that uh, lent itself to this idea of, oh man, it's really not all that. It's uh, I'm just I really am horny to just play music as a group i don't care if he did he not want to be a leader or he just was really no no it's just that that all the uh formalities that come along with being the leader it's Mm -hmm. like kind of a chore but and what are those exactly uh, when you you really just want to play when you really just want to play something you don't want to have it be fettered with all kinds of considerations and stuff can you it's like what comes along with being famous or something it's not all that good you know not everything's good about that because now people think uh you are something and you know you have to live up to that and you know and uh i agree it's just like what you what jerry's thought on that is that what i really want to do is just to play i really i like this music here and i really want to be just you know what it's like to be an artist you have to you have to uh have a focus and a concentration that is totally aside from all that worldly stuff, like who you are and what your rank is and what you're supposed to do and all that kind of stuff. It's just totally different than that. It's beyond that. I mean, Pablo Picasso or somebody, you know, he can't be uh, a regular person. You could go up to him and say, hey, you're wearing shorts in the winter. What What are you doing? You know, or or something but but you know it's just that being an artist is a is a different thing it's like a focus of something that you're doing and so anything else like your driver's license or whatever is is uh, aside from that takes away from it is it also um uh just because you you get elevated to you could be elevated to a deity of sorts i mean jerry was re- so revered at, at, yeah know. well that that that's what that's what should be said yeah that's because it got to it just took off so much uh and so quickly and and uh, it was just incredible all of a sudden jerry was this deity you know and i mean i mean not i mean david in your own way you have you know, you've sustained musically for so many years. So it, it gets to this point where like the only place that you can stay totally in the moment is playing music. Otherwise it's always meeting other demands if you are a band leader. So, yeah, I mean that, right, you know, and exactly. so it's, it, 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 of course, you know, the only time you're not dealing with madness is when you're playing, if you're enjoying yourself, you know, and you, I mean, that's, that's right. Right. I mean, I, you know, that's sort of, that's right. We used yeah. to say that, that I get paid for, uh, they, you know, they say, "How much do you make on this gig?" And I, I would say, "Well, I get paid for 
going to the airport, catching a taxi cab, getting a hotel, <laughs> getting ready for the gig, coming here, setting up, talking. Then I got to play music. That's the that's the thing. Then I'm not <laughs> doing all that. Hmm. So they pay me for that. I don't tell anybody, but I would pay to play the music. But uh, don't tell them that. But I won't. They think they're paying. They're paying me for playing the music. No, they're paying me for taking the cab and taking the plane and all that kind of stuff and all the chores you have to do. Right, and then it's. I mean, you used to camp out the the new riders. It was, it was interesting because you know I've talked to all these cats. I mean, Banana was was he drive for Jesse Colin Young gig. He had a family back in in Mill Valley or Marin. And he just, he wouldn't party at all. He'd go home. And then there's like, yeah. you know, then there's like you guys playing the lion, sh- the lion share, or like, you know, some, some gig at the Berkeley community theater. And you're playing like seven nights in a row. You know, you're not traveling. You know I mean? It's such a, tra- yeah. we live in a transient digital yeah, that space was the, age. One of the, yeah. That was one of the wonderful things, how the Grateful Dead worked it out is, is that uh, after, you know, in the second decade there, uh, they they worked it to they were getting these gig offers and with Bill Graham they co- coordinated it so that they could go to one town and play three or four shows and then go to the next town so the traveling thing isn't so brutal because really it is if you're playing one night stands and you got to get on a plane and get on get to the airport on time every day or get in the rent a car and drive a hundred because no club owner wants you to play within. 50 or 100 miles of his place the next night. Right. You know, so so you have to go long distances and everything, and the dead worked it out. So, okay, we're playing one place for three nights in a row. That's really wonderful. If you can work it to that, if you can get that uh, much uh, of an audience popularity, you know. I mean, did New Riders, did you guys, were you able, if you had to, I know you cut a lot of albums in the seventies. Uh, but yeah. I mean, were you able to sustain if, uh, it just playing, uh, locally in the North Cal- Northern California area? Did you, I mean, the dead were a, a, an animal unto it of itself, but I mean, like, did, yeah. you, did you guys, were you guys on, you know, when you would, you would make, was the onus on making an album or on, uh, well, it's, it's both. Yeah, it's both. It's that when you signed a record contract, the the contract had within it specified we want two albums per year for the first three years, and then we want one album a year for the next two years. It's a five year contract, so you you have to deliver. So, so and, and with a band, know, that's the thing where with authentic cats with originalists, how, how did you guys? How have you done that over time is making quality? Yeah, you just uh, yeah. You try to write new songs and, and practice them and, and get, them, get them up and running as quick as you can because uh, you don't want to have to go in this. You don't want to go into the studio with uh, not too much of an idea of, a, of songs that you're going to record and have to work them out. You can do that. A lot of times bands do it. You go into the studio because you have to and and then you just think if you start playing some groove and you make a song out of it, yeah, that can be done. But what we like to do is write the song, get it uh, played, play it on some gigs. Then you start to find out where the song is, where the 
the real heart of the song is and where it's going and stuff like that and then then go into the studio but a lot of times we'd have to just go in and record it and record it and then i remember a couple times going out of the studio because the mix down went longer a couple days longer than we expected and uh having my suitcase at the studio going out of the studio getting in a cab go to the airport go on the road <laughs> boy it's can just you like, can you talk that's insane yeah well, can you talk about that feeling uh as an as a as an artist of being basically under a, a deadline to come up with tunes and then you're not even used to really knowing where the heart of the song is and you have to put it on a record what does that feel like yeah yeah it's it's kind of like that it, that's why I, I really loved it when we'd had some experience playing the song but then a lot of times sometimes right in the studio that's where the groove happens and you just feel that uh groove of it and that causes you to get ideas and and uh, sparks a lot of stuff happening can, too so there's that too could you could you point to a specific time with with the with Dawson when you guys had some spontane spontaneous combustion in the studio yeah yeah let me think uh uh, Talking to David Nelson here on the Jake Feinberg show. He's on the mend, uh, getting ready to get back in the saddle with Pete Sears and Barry Sless. And uh, yeah, I think with uh, with uh, uh, the song, uh, you know, uh, Hand Jive. Yeah, we just get into the groove, and uh, we didn't really uh, we we uh, uh, exploited uh, with us. The uh, ability, our ability to make something that was almost commercial, you know, just like a package. So that we thought of our songs as like packages and get it in there, get in there, play your solo, sing the verses, and you're out and get it there in under three minutes. Because that was the thing that you couldn't get airplay if the song was over three minutes. That's why the dead never got airplay very much and everything. So, so we thought of ourselves as more commercial and because we, could do that and so we'd go in and most of the tunes were like that until we got the a tune like hand jive and we just kept playing it and playing it and playing it and all of a sudden went, hey are we done and uh <laughs> and that song went on for a long time i mean i think it's on the album it's way longer than three minutes i know that because we just started jamming and off on it and just playing the groove and and uh that's a good example of that up till the, just up till took the, off in the studio. Up till that point, uh, you're um, you're basically um, you guys had never stretched out in the studio longer than like a three minute thing. Everything. Well, was... no, we weren't. We were trying not to. We were trying to, you know, with the, with Jerry was on the first album and everything, and we all just agreed that now we got to make these packages, you know, because this is a, a chance. We didn't know it was our first album, so we thought we might have a chance of actually getting in the marketplace, you know, getting on the top, the Billboard Top 100 or something like that, maybe, you know, and so we tried to make it as, as commercially viable as possible and all the things that the radio station will tell you, have it be under three minutes and the, the record label will tell you another thing and, and, uh, you know, the nightclubs will tell you another thing and stuff like that. So, you know, I think John Dawson was thinking of all that uh, when he wrote the stuff to have a variety of ideas and 
and uh, and and you know synthesize. I mean, uh, down to you know to nice little packages. You know, intense, concentrated, concentrate them down to each song to a nice little package that has everything in it. Making it seem a lot easier than it's than it sounds. Uh, yes, right. Yeah. I mean, that is so. In, if you best case scenario, how how do you want to finish this year with the with your band? I mean, do you have? Can you assuming you 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 mend. Uh, in, are you looking at being able to get on the bandstand before the end of the year? I don't think so. Actually, it's uh, it's not looking like it. Uh, but uh, I might be there just to sing. That's possible. But we don't really have anything until after the New Year's anyway. Uh, I won't be doing the New Year's gig. Uh, the reason I brought up the fact that you're on the mend is uh, you know that Barlow is also not... He's, he, he, oh yeah, yeah. And I just you know I want right. I wanted you to uh, uh, you know what what mortality. How how are you dealing with mortality? I mean you're out yeah. in the dark tripping, you know and and uh, you know and uh, you know Barlow's in his in his on his trip. I mean you just talk about that idea of mortality and uh, yeah. I think you guys always sort of had a grasp on it, which is one reason it seems like you're. Well, it, it is the fact that you guys are still like pretty high, you know. I I just remembered the joke. This is a good one. This is a joke that Barlow told me. This mm-hmm. guy is walking down the street, uh, busy street downtown, and uh, he's got a cigar box in his hands, and it's all taped up with masking tape. It's taped shut, and it's making this sound like like that, and the guy comes up to him, a stranger comes up to him and says, hey, what's that sound? What, what's in that box? And the guy goes, it's my bee collection. <laughs> he says, bee collection? Yeah. He says, I got 10,000 bees right here in this box. 100,000 bees right in this box. He says, 100,000 bees? Don't they get crushed? The guy says, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> it's my collection. I can do anything I want with it. Fuck them. <laughs> What, 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 why does that resonate? Why did that resonate with you and Barlow? What was the... I, don't, I don't know. I just howled when I heard that. I just howled. Oh, and I God. Thought, yeah, exactly. That fuck him. Fuck him. <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny. You know, um, <laughs> so tripped out. Um, how did you, uh, there's this epic thing, uh, on uh, that I've been seeing. The, I mean, you guys play in, in, in Hawaii a lot. Uh, yeah, band and, and yeah, that's what I'm. I'm hoping for that uh, for the arm to be in good shape for that. I'm hoping to do be able to do the Hawaii tour. It will come at the end of January and into the beginning of February. Because uh, I'm looking here at a a, a glass blowing session on Maui with you and Billy Kreutzman. Oh yeah, how did that? Yeah, what this, was we, that? I mean, when we did, did that one time. Yeah, but I mean that must did, that must go back. Before that, I mean, it wasn't like you guys were like, "Hey, this is our new hobby." I mean, were you guys? Was there any glass blowing going? On? I know people were making instruments. No, out of- this this was a guy who makes this beautiful artwork, uh, glass blowing. It's incredible. And so he was having a session, and he had the band play at it to sell some glassware. 
You know, I mean that people could come and they could see all this stuff, and you could get an original, uh, you know, a globe that goes over a light bulb or, or uh, a vase, or uh, beautiful stuff. I mean, really incredible, intricate, you know, colors and everything like that. It was just really great. And yeah. so, what I really wigged on was the, the the guy showing me how how it's done. I mean, he actually has this hot furnace. Thing and you put it in there, and it, he pulls it out of the furnace, and it's this glowing uh, piece of glass, a dripping, you know, of glass. And then he makes a shape out of it, and then he puts it in something else, and he has ways of shaping it. And uh, it was just incredible watching him do that. Yeah, I was. He had like those uh, cleavers. He was. He kept moving this stuff around when it was still ma malleable. Uh, it was quite remar yeah. really remarkable stuff. But how did yeah. so? I mean, but but Billy was playing playing drums with you guys. How how was he there? Yeah, yeah, because he he lived there. Well, no, no, I dig that. I mean, but he, he when you guys go out there, he 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 plays he plays drums with you out there. We would hook up with him as as much as possible. Yeah, some of the first couple of times we went there, he was our drummer for the tour. Right, I've seen some of that. There's some really nice, uh, yeah, some nice some nice tunes. But you know, I always was curious too about the idea that on Power Glide and a few other of those new riders albums, Billy found his way on to the to the sessions. Like he he's playing percussion on those sessions. Uh huh. Yeah. And so That's because the dead were recording at the same time and or we all would go to the record plant and and see, you know. Yes. Wow. We asked Billy on Power Glide, yeah, we had him play some some percussion. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Fun really fun, yeah. Um going back in the lineage of music, David, I'm gonna ask you for the forefathers of uh, uh, in bluegrass, uh, it was Bill Monroe. And yeah. Did you, you did you have a chance to? I, I don't believe you, did, you never played with him. I know Peter Rowan did, but can you talk? Mm. Can you? Talk, I mean, I, the lineage of music goes. Back. I never did play with him. I met him at the Ash Grove when uh, real early on there when me Jerry. And Adam Zotis got in the car. We heard that Doc Watson and Bill Monroe was the double bill at the Ash Grove. The Ash Grove's <laughs> in Los Angeles. Sure, Scotty we Stoneman and, used to play there. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, we're we're up there in Palo Alto. And so anyway, we drove all the way down there, and we got our tickets for the two days. And and uh, one of the days, I was just learning to play mandolin because. Uh, because uh, 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 Eric Thompson was going to play guitar, and so he didn't play mandolin, so I was going to uh, play mandolin. So I was just just working it out on mandolin. And uh, so one of the days at the Ashgrove, it's uh, like before the band is playing or something like that, and there's people walking around, and I saw Bill Monroe walking toward the stage, and just he walked in the uh, walkway there looking at the stage but there was a lot of people so he stopped and so I went up <laughs> beside him and said hey Bill hi my name's David Nielsen and I said I was just learning to play mandolin and I was wondering if you could give me any pointers about stuff that's important about learning to play mandolin and he said yeah yeah just uh, 
always keep a loose wrist and don't hold the pick too tight. <laughs> and I just, I marveled at that. I mean, those are the two best things you can say about learning to play mandolin. Wait, wait, wait. Don't hold I mean, the pick too tight. Okay, Keep a loose wrist yeah. when you're playing, oh, and don't hold the pick too tight. That is epic. That is really, really important. You'll find it when you oh, get up tight and you're trying to struggle with some lick. You're gripping that pick really hard, you know, and it's not going so well. You're slowing down. You know, it's like, oh, man, I just went, yeah, that's right. Just don't hold the, just hold the pick and just bubbles out. I mean, but it's not loose enough where it could possibly, you know, like flip out of your hands. You know, you don't want to lose the pick. Well, no, I, I mean, but just don't hold it too tight. That's the right. thing. Right. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, you got to you gotta let it be, you know. And, and But, I mean, yeah. what is the quality? I have this record that Pacific Standard Oil put out from 74 with Vassar Clemens. And, man, I got to tell you, his the way he talked is, is the exact way that you just described Monroe. No more than three or four word utterances, yet it was profound. Yeah. It was profound stuff. Yes. It was very, right. very profound, man. It was yes. like, he's like, there ain't, he's like, it's, it's good to hear. It's, it's, it's good to hear when somebody's playing good fiddle. He's like, but there's nothing worse than if it's bad. You know, like, yes, you know, right. it's like, you're stuff just like that, so yeah. on point, you know? Oh, yeah. And this girl's actually a very like good interviewer. She has her own style and sounds you know like total hippie and and just but vassar's just like uh you know and also you know the ego did not exist they're like yeah th she's like how did you become such a do you do you practice a lot he's like i have to practice he's like oh, i have to practice a lot he's like i, I don't know about anybody else but i i gotta practice i mean there's no ego yeah. there's none you know yeah how do you count for i mean is that what you grab what you guys gravitated to aside from the the music was just how how like effortlessly simply genius these cats were I know it's just totally incredible. Yeah, Vassar was full of stuff like that. Just the one or two word things that are just. <laughs> Dude, he was. He, I mean, I can't know, stop listening statement. to it. I can't stop listening yeah. to this guy. The way he talked, and the way he, yeah. uh, the way he delivers it is just like this. It would have been a. Group. He was a funny guy too. He'd, I have a tape. Uh, <sighs> one time, I was off on the road with the new writers, and my girlfriend was watching the house, and one of the days, uh, Vassar and Sandy Rothman came over because they thought I was there, and Sandy said, we ought to go see David, and Vassar was in town, and so they came over. No, Sherry says, no, he's not here, but you guys come on in. And they came in, they sat down on the couch, and they started playing. So Sherry puts on a tape. <laughs> it's a cassette tape, puts it on. And just a room mic, you know, and, and uh, so I got home and I listened to this and I just, and it's just jamming and noodling, just, you know, just fooling around. And there's this one tune, and they play on and on. And then Sandy takes a solo and and then Vassar, and, and then they finish it. And Vassar goes, ha, ah, Flint Hill special. <laughs> As if they were playing a real stock bluegrass tune. It was totally a, just a jammer way out there. You couldn't define it in any kind of <laughs> words. He just, he, he just, ah, Flint Hill special. <laughs> he just, I mean, such a neat, such an affable cat. Uh, uh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
So, but I just wanted you to go across in your mind who, not who are the forefathers, who was your forefather for R&B and soul, for rock, for jazz, and yeah, and, and why, and why? Well, that would be the friends, the, my friends in high school. Um, I can't name any one person exactly, except. Uh, friend Bob Galling, he was the guy who would tell me about uh, certain things, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it got intense, I was, uh, you know, it was right, our age group right then was right smack dab ground zero at the birth of rock and roll. I remember my clock radio would wake me up on a school day every day, and it's a clock radio, so the radio would go on instead of an alarm. And I remember waking up and hearing uh, great balls of fire, you know, or you ain't nothing but a hound dog, you know, and, and just time after time, the first time anybody ever heard it, there it is, boom, you know. and wow. uh, First time played just, on the radio, that's, that's awesome. That is well, awesome. I mean, the, when the tune came out, they're playing it all over the country. Absolutely. But, but being right at the age when that's it suddenly, you know, it dawned on me a couple of years after that that, the, yeah, man, we were right ground zero. That was it. Well, what that about, I mean, it. hold on, though. What about distribution? Like, didn't sometimes records take longer to get to certain regions of the countries than others? Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. I mean, I think, I, like, I mean, like. And also, our, you'd yeah. go to a record store and you'd ask for the record. They didn't let you browse through bins of records. You'd go up there and you'd ask, do you have Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Thomas? And they'd go over to the, the slots there and they'd say, yes, we do. And they'd hand you the 78. I was buying 78s. And uh, then 45s came in and then it got to be more of a teenage thing. And then they said, okay, you can put on these headphones and you can listen to a record over here. And... Uh, and uh, then these little booths that you could listen to a record, and then finally they agreed, okay, you can thumb through albums. It was so funny, you know, that that record stores weren't thought of as, they were more like furniture stores or something, <laughs> and that's, that's the odd thing. It's the invention of records. Yeah. They didn't know what where to put them, what to do with them. I love and that. back in the 20s, when records were invented, and so they did, they made their debut in furniture stores because you were buying a Victrola. You were buying a record player. Sure, sure. At the store, at a furniture store. And so they great. say, and here's some records for you to play on on there, you know? And, right, you uh, can go to book, club, book clubs uh, or the record clubs. You know, Columbia would yeah. send you records. The, a lot of the yeah. jazzers would get those. That's how they learned about it. The, you know, Duke Ellington and Dizzy and those cats. Like that, they would come in the, with a record. But, I mean, the idea was that you... You were going to a, a, I don't want to say corporate, but you were going to a furniture store, and that's where you would yeah. buy uh, a record yeah. player, as opposed to going to you know like some vintage thrift shop now. Uh, or yeah, there, like there that. wasn't a, there wasn't a special uh, field. There wasn't a special store for just records because it was too new. In nineteen, I'm talking about 1935 or something like that. You know, where. Uh, you know, it's just too new of a thing. And the, when some of those records were recorded in 1928 and the old, old stuff, you know, and uh, 
even opera and classical and and uh, you know jazz and, and and stuff. They they were it was too new of a thing for somebody to have a music store where you sell records. They, <laughs> they didn't they hadn't thought of that yet. They hadn't they thought of it. it they had gonna, not where, thought of it yet. Yeah, they could because it's hard to tell where is this thing going to go. I mean, how how far are these people going to go with this? Well, what was the medium before that, though? I mean, was it just was it just it was literally yeah, I don't live. Know. They, it was played, my... they played them on the radio. That's what you were encouraged to do: is listen to the radio for the records. Okay, so the records were being made and then distributed to radio stations, but they weren't being sold wholesale, or they weren't being sold. I don't know. Yeah, I I wonder. I I don't know exactly how that works, but I just know from a uh, ordinary person's standpoint is that. Even when I was a little kid, we listened to the radio, and uh, I would sit there, and and uh, parents would buy their kids record albums, which is a a book like a big book with brown envelopes in it, and there's 78 records that you put on the changer, you know. And I had uh, I had Hopalong Cassidy's songs and stories. Tex no Tex Ritter, not Hopalong Cassidy. Excuse me, Tex Ritter's songs and stories. Great record, you know. I'd sit there and, you know, be I was you know three or four years old. Sit there, crouched by the Magnavox, and listen to Tex Ritter and and also classical stuff. Peter and the Wolf and and uh, narrated by Basil Rathbone, <laughs> stuff like that. And I'd sit there, and then I liked my father's records. He liked Burl Ives, so he had these stacks of seventy eights of Burl Ives. And I would sit there and listen to those too, and and I was cutting teeth. I remember how young I was, because the the corner of the book cover, you know, of the album, uh, was just perfect for you know, in between your teeth to massage that area where your a new tooth is coming in. You know, <laughs> I got in trouble for that chewing up the chewing up the corners of the album. Oh, that was you, and that wasn't the, the mice? That wasn't that was, that was me. No, that wasn't the mice. That was me. I admit it. Hey, uh, do you have, on Panama Red, uh, you know, my show really just st it started uh, uh, me interviewing a, 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 just the most amazing accompanists in all forms of music. And uh, one of the things I love about the time period that you and you really, the for, your formative years in the New Riders, you guys... Um, uh, on Panama Red, brought in Armando Paraza to play percussion. Right. Do you? How oh did, yeah. How did that? How, how did that happen? I can't remember how that <laughs> happened, but I remember. I knew what Armando Paraza yeah, from. You, yeah. Tell me about how you knew from Armando. Cal, from the, he played with Cal Jader. Oh my God! See Jader. He would play with Cal Jader, or he'd be in the he'd be in San Francisco, and he'd be at the Black Hawk, and he would be sitting in with everybody, anybody who played there. Yeah. What, yeah, that, and I think that some I've interviewed of us that knew all, about him. Yeah, I've interviewed all the, the everyone from that Jader community. A lot of cats aren't with us anymore, but that band was like Willie Bobo on Tim Bobby's, yeah. uh, Armando Paraza yeah. on Latin percussion. I mean, I mean you were yeah. David Nelson was dancing to that music. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was like always listening to it. Yeah. Well, what got you off about that Afro-Cubans, the, the, the clave? What did oh, you like about that? Incredible, yeah, the rhythms. Just incredible. It was like uh, 
jazz and then something else. <laughs> yeah, man, that was great stuff. But yeah, all right. Hey, uh, D- uh, Nelson, I-, I love you, man. We, uh, that- I had a ball with you, man. I- I'll let you, uh, I'll let you go. But um, okay, all right. Um, and go ahead. Yeah, it was the the Black Hawk that I was trying to remember in the last interview. I was trying to remember that that club I went to to see Thelonious Monk. Yeah, hold on. And also, I was I was wondering if I could send you. I I went uh, to my iTunes collection and browsed through my Thelonious Monk stuff and got a couple of cuts that I was thinking I could uh, email them to you just to listen to. Are you kidding me? I'd be I I would just love that. Would you like? Yeah, man. yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, what uh, I need to do with you, actually, I've been transcribing a chunk of chunks of our interview first interview so i'll send you that along for future reference if you need it because there's some okay. profound stuff in there as well and, and yeah. you, you know, i mean let's uh uh you know let's just be in touch man i you know you're you're part of the brotherhood and uh you know this is like uh and sister you know the tune in walked bud it's a Thelonious Monk tune. It's it's about Bud Powell. In walked Bud means Bud Powell. Sure. And uh, my friend Tom Stern, who made these uh, series of albums called The Usual Suspects, he would gather from different people from different fields of music and stuff like that, and say, "Okay, we're playing In Walked Bud," and I believe I played rhythm guitar on In Walked Bud one time. He had a bunch of other musicians playing it too. So I, I hold on a second. I'm on, what, on, on what? On what? This was on a, a recording of uh, a recording of us doing in what in walked bud. It was Tom Stern, who just passed away. It's really I'm grief stricken. He's one of my best friends. Oh. But uh, we were friends for all those years. Played with Wakefield and me. He played five string banjo. Anyway, he used to make these records called The Usual Suspects, and they would have variety of stuff like the ultimate variety there's there'd be jazz tunes there'd be opera classical or, or just it's cool old tunes done in a new way Taj Mahal would be on them and and I'm there on several tunes and and uh just people from all around you know playing it's like 10 inch he would, he would have these sessions what what like, a, like they were like 10 inch records or they were like full 33 no no they were this was in the 70s Oh my God! Wait, wait, what, my friend Tom Stern. What, yeah. What label was this on? I need I need to hear you playing guitar. His own label. He he did put him out on his own. He just didn't have a label from a company, I don't think. And he later sold him to. Uh, uh, Arhuli. No. Uh, was it one at local? Uh, oh damn. Berserkly. Didn't even think of it. I'm just looking no, at the guy. most uh, prominent one of label of in San Francisco Bay Area that uh, Rhino. they usually do Ry- folk music. Rhino, or, Rhino, yeah. or right, the other one besides Rhino. There's two. Uh, Tom Diamant. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll think of it. But but uh, no, anyway, there's a, there's a ton of stuff. He later this... sold all the usual suspect stuff to them, but uh, they they just put it in the basement. They don't have any place to put it you know it's like what kind of music is because a company usually wants to sell one kind of to one kind of audience direct it to a certain audience or age group 
And this is like on one album would be tunes so diverse that you never heard of that, such stuff. And I'll get that to you too. I'll I'll, I'll dig up. I, I got the albums myself, the yeah. vinyl. But no, yeah. I actually I'm looking here on YouTube, and there's David Nelson and Tom Stern, February eighth, nineteen eighty six. Hollister, huh. Hollister, California. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's up. That, that we got a soundboard of that already on YouTube. But yeah, I mean, you know, let's just oh. listen, man. I, I gotta go pick up my kids. I I, I could talk to you for yeah. hours. We'll do part three. We'll be in touch. I had a ball, man. Okay. All right. All right, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. Be good. Thanks, Jake. Later, David. Bye. Take care. Just listen. Just uh, hearing the beautiful lyrics, songs, words of David Nelson. Uh, we'll have him back on the program. Uh, back tomorrow with uh, David Garibaldi from Tower of Power. Until then, let's rejoin the Jim Parisi show. Common sense people, I'm sure, around the country said the same thing. When I was telling you about the Trump presidency, I've said it with Steve Cass. I said it a million times. There will be no brick and mortar wall. Anyone who thought he was actually going to build a wall from scratch does so not know the border. Yeah, but he said he was.